everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. We are talking all about industrial data, the future of industrial data with our once again, ja once again, guest, Jim Gavigan. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming back. Howdy. Glad to be here. And uh, it's funny, you have 30,000 subscribers. I don't even have 300 yet for our channel, but... I don't we'll get you there. It. We'll get you there. <laughs> yeah. But, I, that's it. but what's funny though, even with 300 subscribers, uh, we've actually been able to close a deal with some people we've hired and even with some customers because they go look at our content and they're like, wow, we, we actually like what we see here. So that's really what it's there for. I'm I'm not looking to grow my subscriber base, but I have tons of respect, you know, especially in a niche industry like we're in to mm -hmm. have that kind of a following. That's super good. And if I, you know, if I can not necessarily make a commitment for you, but I think the demos you had shown to me and Dave are extremely insightful. Obviously, if you were able to share some of that information with uh, getting the customer's approval, I think that would be really insightful for many people in our industry. So, um, yeah, not to not unique, unique stuff. That's for sure. But no, Jim, thank you so much for joining us for a second conversation. I think the first time we spoke was almost two years ago. Uh, so could you give us maybe an introduction? I know that we've mentioned your company name, but uh, how did you get into manufacturing? How did you get into data? And what is it that you do today? So I'll, I'll do the cliff notes. So I got into the business in 95, started out as a vibration analyst. And within about three months, uh, that's a funny story. I won't go into it, but actually transitioned to a controls engineer. And I spent a lot of time doing everything from designing and building control panels, putting them in industrial plants, helping run the wire, conduit wire to them, hooking up the wires, programming the PLCs, doing the HMI work, you know, doing service calls, pretty much everything you would do with a controls, you know, background. And, and really I would put my first six years up against most people's 10 or 15 because I had everything thrown at me, lots of different industries and literally touched everything. And that was, that was hugely beneficial for me. And I just, I ate it up. And then after that, I was kind of tired of working every holiday, getting calls on weekends, getting calls at night, you know, you know, the drill. And I decided to go into sales and work for Rockwell Automation. Uh, it was a rep agency for Rockwell and then we got acquired. So I'll just say we were, I worked for Rockwell Automation. It's much easier. And then I did a one-year stint as a technical consultant for them. So I was more of a technical person on the sales side, that immediate post-sale and pre-sale tech support person. Mm -hmm. So I did that for about a year, then was recruited by uh, an integrator out of Memphis, Logical Systems, and was their business development manager. Never took away the technical hat. I, I you know, filled in at, at times for them, and that's where I learned about the Pi system. And we were doing some work for a large food manufacturer and we were able to solve a problem we had been fighting for probably 18 months and did it in like a week because we could actually see the pie data and put it together in ways that we understood. And then we were able to actually go and solve a problem that helped this food manufacturer land a new customer that doubled their business in this particular you know, segment. And they had to build a plant you know, to support that. And they said, we're coming to you to have this plant built. And, and I remember saying, this was probably 2011, I remember saying, man, this data thing just made two companies millions of dollars. And I, I kind of knew there was something to that and I never really could get 
traction there at LSI. We, we never really could kind of figure it out because we always had a bunch of stuff going on. And then fast forward to 2013, I got recruited to come to OSI Soft as a sales uh, salesperson and managed Tennessee and Arkansas for them and then moved to Florida as a strategic account manager. And then a year later, had another boss and he and I didn't get along very well. So I left, went back to LSI and started their uh, manufacturing intelligence practice mm -hmm. and then realized I really needed to do this on my own to, to really see it through the way I really wanted to do things. So in December of 2016, I took the biggest risk I've ever taken and started Industrial Insight. And uh, so what we do is we call ourselves time series data experts. So the typical data historians you would see in a plant, you know, working with that time series data and actually turning it into actionable information that actually helps your plant, you know, run more reliably, reduce downtime, you know, make your equipment run better and just give you better situational awareness about what's actually happening on the floor. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we do. So really anything from the incoming data flow, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And I've got some kudos to give for that to someone on this call. Um, all the way from that data ingest, all the way to advanced analytics and everything in between, you know, we work with, you know, we really want to be able to provide solutions to customers about how to run better. So. And ultimately, Jim, if I may expand a little bit for those who aren't familiar with the, with the Pi system, mm -hmm. um, the architecture, as I understand, for someone who doesn't currently have and wants to deploy a, a Pi system they would deploy a server they would capture data from typically plcs or maybe scada or historians and then be able to perform an analysis like could you paint us maybe a picture of what what is possible right like again not necessarily giving specific <laughs> customer examples but what can you can you do or what can you discover uh through those data analyses oh man what can you discover it's a very broad question vlad like i understand yeah. you tried to narrow it down there but, but the easy answer is everything, right? So yeah. I'll, I'll let Jim extrapolate upon uh, that they can go do anything that you could possibly dream of and more. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of some, you know, a couple of concise examples. So I'll give one that's probably been one of our best success stories, right? Is we had a customer, it's a chemical manufacturer, and really they, they kind of mirror oil and gas in a lot of ways. And they have wells that pull stuff out of the ground, they pipe it to the plant, and then they extract what they need. And they were having a contamination problem, you know, with the incoming stream. And what would happen would be that they would get this contamination problem, it runs through a purification process, then they sample after the purification process every four hours. And then they would detect, hey, we have this contamination problem. Well, how long has it been here? Where did it all go? There's a bunch of products we make that can't take something that's contaminated that way. So they would literally have to shut down. And they had some very profitable processes in that plant. They have to shut it all down mm -hmm. and go figure out where they put it all and get it back into a recycle tank and restart and then slowly work you know, everything back in. Well, they had a, a pie process book. It was just a trend screen you know, this thing. And I think I've showed it to Dave number, a number of times. Um, and, and actually, I think I've even, even showed it in the presentation I did at Pi World in 2019. But it's just a bunch of squiggly lines on a screen. And there's a, you know, red bar on, on the top and the left side. And you hope people understand how to interpret all the squiggly lines, all the different pens and 
things of that nature to understand like what is that telling them well we did is we turned that into really a prediction tool we just built some calculations based on knowledge they had we this was our first foray into machine learning and it was a honestly it was a failure from the machine pure machine learning standpoint so it kind of jaded me a little bit i guess or actually didn't jade me it it made me very wise to what to look for and so we actually just took some of the learnings from that whole process and said, well, let's just build a real-time calculation that tells you what percent chance we think that that contamination event's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And they've since added some more sensors upstream on the, you know, pipelines that, you know, tell us in, a little bit earlier that something may happen. So, so now we've kind of evaluated the travel, you know, of that flow to the plant and we can actually say, okay, we detected at this point in time at this time. So therefore an hour later, you're going to see it at the plant. So we actually put a time on the screen. This is what time we think it's going to get to the plant. Mm -hmm. So gone from a very reactive, you've got to interpret everything to here's the percent chance you have. And here's when we think it's coming, you know, so it gets them very proactive. I I mean, I always use the analogy, you know, we take people, most people have used a data historian, use it very reactively. Something's broke, you know, process went down, Let's go use that as a, a troubleshooting tool. What we figure out what happened, but that's all they use it for, and that's the way these systems have been used for years. And and more and more people and companies are are, are being better about that, using it proactively. But I always tell people that's like driving down the road, looking at your rearview mirror. It's a very small segment of what you really need to look at. You want to be looking out the windshield. Yeah, you need to know the path you just crossed. You need you need to understand where you've been, but it's really more important that you're looking at where you're going. Right. So so that that's like a a good example of something we've done. But how does the data get there? You're right. Sensor to a control system of some kind, PLC, DCS, RTU. Uh, Typically, the typical architecture these days goes to an OPC server, you know, which is serving up their HMI. The Pi system plugs in with a, a piece of software called an OPC interface, pipes it over to the data archive. That's the traditional historian, right? That's the time series data. But then on the side, they also put in this um, asset framework database. So it's it's a way to take a very flat tag structure and actually organize it into an equipment hierarchy and, you know, join all like, a, like uh, tags and other information to a piece of equipment and organize it in a hierarchical structure where the process engineer or whoever else is in the plant can, can look at it and not have to remember you know, okay, what is that particular flow's tag name? You know, they can actually browse down through a hierarchy and find it. So that's actually done in SQL. That's, the asset framework is actually a SQL database. And then they have, you know, a series of client tools that allow you to go look at the data. They have PyVision, which is, you know, kind of a real-time trending and dashboarding tool that's web-based. They still have the Excel add-in, which most historians have, you know, in PyDataLink. And then there's a whole bunch of developer tools we can suck data out using different queries and, and stuff like that if we want to build a custom application or something like that. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how the data flows and what people use. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. If I can ask, I guess, um, to elaborate a little bit on that, Jim, do you find that there's a lot of customers who have that data to a certain degree in usable format for you when your team comes in? Or do you find yourself maybe <laughs> doing a lot of retrofits, Massaging the data, whatever that looks like, figuring out some instrumentation tools for them as well, right? Because you mentioned, I think, a sensor that was pulling or or a system that was pulling every four hours. And I can imagine how that would be uh, problematic for a real-time analysis. 
to well it's it, it was part of how they do their lab testing right okay. they would test for this contamination and they're like we're going to test six times a day and then if they had the contamination they would start testing like every hour or two hours you know until it, everything cleared okay. up you know but now they don't really have to do that they've actually in that particular scenario they've actually installed equipment on wells that have they kind of feel like have been known to produce that contamination they actually have a piece of equipment that cleans everything and separates it before it ever gets to the plant. We've seen one event, and I think it was on Christmas, that I can recall in the last year. And even over the last couple of years, you could see the operator got suspicious and they would run things to the recycle tank. You could see how when they did it. And they haven't had a problem like that in a really long time now. And this, they used to have it four, five, six times a year. Wow. So, but um, to, in answer to your question, it's getting better. You know, we we have we have a mix. I'm still kind of thinking eighty to ninety percent of customers really don't have their ducks in a row. Yeah. You know, when it comes to this, they're they're still. It's better than it used to be. Pretty much every customer we go into has done something in asset framework, is using Pi Vision more, but you would be surprised at still how little people are using it. And with all of the turnover, a lot of times, I, I went to see a customer last week, they've turned over two or three times, they didn't realize what they had. Mm -hmm. And then they found they have one guy in the Philippines who knows anything about the, how the whole system works. One guy. And he had developed this custom application to kind of replace process book for whatever reason, because they, they have PyVision, they're licensed for it, but they never thought about using it. So this guy, he needed a solution. He built something with VBA or, or you know, VB.net or something like that, built a, a custom visualization tool when they, when this IT group came in, they found this guy and he had all this stuff on his laptop. Like he's keeping everything running on his laptop in the Philippines and nobody really knows what he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So we, we see the gamut of things. I mean, I'm doing a consulting engagement now with a, with a large um, paper manufacturer. They have pockets where they're doing some stuff. They have some people that are, that recognize the value. They just don't have enough of it. And at the mills, they're just so reactionary and they have so much turnover that it's really, really hard to get traction. So they're having to do stuff at a corporate level. You know, we're seeing that as a problem. So, but yeah, it, it, it's kind of all over, Vlad. Um, better than it was. It, the conversations that I'm having now are way easier when I than when I started in 2016 and way, way easier than when I started at LSI and way, 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 way easier than when I was at OSISoft. So... Uh, there's been a lot of marketing, a lot of hype, and and there's frankly, there's been a lot of value. People have done stuff and they're like, wow, this is actually pretty darn important. And there's a lot of value if we just treat it right. So Absolutely. it's getting better. Just to, to clarify, Jim, uh, Pi Vision, that's the UI or the dashboarding component of those? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a web-based kind of dashboarding tool and trending tool. Yep. Gotcha. Understood. Um, if I want to, I guess, ask you on the skill set, right? So you've, you've mentioned that there's pockets of people who really understand and kind of have developed, I want to say, a, a good knowledge of Pi. What's, uh, even if, if you're looking to hire in your company, what's a good skill set that you see 
in someone who wants to get in this uh, line of work, right? It could be at an end user and an integrator. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, my in my mind, it could be a software engineer, but then you're looking to fill up the, the gap on the process side. Could be somebody on the process side, but then you need some programming skills. Like what's what's your judgment there? Well, it varies. I mean, you look at, you know, I'll just run down all of our backgrounds. There's six of us now. Um, you know, mine, you, you heard mine. You know, Ben Still, he came from a manufacturing background. He worked at a large manufacturing company doing controls and data work, data historians and getting data out of stuff that nobody knew how to connect to. Right. So he had no pie knowledge when I hired him, but a mutual connection called me when I put a field, some feelers out on LinkedIn and said, I have the guy you need to hire. It wasn't like I, I have someone you need to talk to, you know, someone you should be interested in. It was like, I have the guy you need to hire and here's his name, you know, here's his contact info. And he, he was right, you know, so thanks, Gray, for that. Um, so that, you know, he, he and I have a similar background in that regard. Katie Ellis, she actually has a chemical engineering degree. You know, she was, a uh, you know, running, you know, operations and operations supervision, got into the pie side. She's done DCS. She's done a lot of environmental work, you know, but she really enjoys working with data and really liked the pie stuff. When she looked back, you know, at her career, she was like, that's what I had the most fun doing. And she actually recruited us. You know, she was actually working at one of our customers and she approached us and said, hey, I'd really like to do what you guys do full time. That's that looks like a lot of fun. And, you know, she's been awesome. And so she has a different you know, background than Ben or I. Abel uh, Padilla came to us. You know, he's got an electronics background, electronics engineering. He was doing a lot of work in oil and gas, some skater work, things like that. He got into pie maybe, I don't know, 12 years ago, something along those lines. He's done some work in pharma. You know, with with I think it was Eli Lilly. He did a presentation at, at the 2017, I believe, or 2018 Pi World, you know, on what he did there. You know, some really, really neat work. And then uh, Philip Babb, he actually had no Pi experience at all. He was working for Impact Selector. And those guys do hydraulic fracturing and and, you know, kind of the end of the line tooling kind of thing. And he was actually analyzing data and he had written some stuff with uh, Python and, you know, was building some of his own graphics and was trying to analyze data to figure out what this was telling him. And he really likes to do puzzles and solve problems. That's a big thing. That's really a common theme among all of us. We like to go solve problems. And then Nick Vitello, his background actually started out doing building automation work. And then he kind of happened into getting into Pi, then became a programmer. So he's very, very good with C-sharp.net and he's, he's an Azure admin. You know, he knows, and he also went back to school and got his IT security background or uh, degree. So he has kind of more of the programming developer background, but he, he also had some real world controls type experience as well with the building automation stuff. So I guess what I look for is you kind of have the aptitude and attitude for what we like to do. You want to help people. You want to solve problems. You like working with data and statistics. It's it's something that's fun that you find interesting. Um, probably somebody, if I'm looking at someone who's more entry level, I really want someone who's, you know, been out in the field for a couple of years and seen industrial plants and how things operate. Maybe it's controls, maybe it's operations you know, an operations engineer type person, process engineer, you know, those people tend to fit us really well because they understand 
how the equipment works, we can teach them the data side. They just have to have an interest. They have to want to do that because it because it's different. But you know that that's typically what I'm recruiting for is, is people who like to solve problems and help people, and they need some kind of an industrial background, you know, to do that. There we can fill the holes in a lot of cases. Yeah, that makes sense. So, really appreciate that. Yeah. If I could follow up, you know, you've mentioned a lot of different industries. Is there a an industry that you tend to focus on? Do you think that pie applies to no. certain industries there? A preference? It's, no, we we do business in chemicals, paper, food, oil and gas, power. Just talked to a pharma uh, company um, a couple weeks ago, or yes, yeah, a couple weeks ago now. I'm trying to think, there's there may be one that I'm missing, but no, I want us to be diverse. You know, because especially in this economic climate that we're approaching, I think diversity is going to help us a lot. And just we we know over the last 50 years, you have boom and bust in a lot of industries, right? Oil and gas is boom or bust. Paper is boom or bust. You know, chemicals can be. It, it depends on what you're into. Food, we always have to have food. You know, it seems like they do better in a down economy, especially if, it, if they're selling to a consumer market, they do better. So... You know, power, we always have to have that. I, I'm looking for stuff we have to have. Not want to have, but have to have. You know, so that would kind of keep us out of maybe automotive, even though we have to have a car, but we don't have to have the new car, right? So I'm, I'm kind of looking at some industries. I'm like, mm-hmm. interesting. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't go there, but I, I want to keep us diversified. And what's, what's interesting is in the past, say, like 10 years ago, you would go to a customer, say a paper customer. Well, what do you know about the paper industry? Well, I know not to call it a couch, right? And they'd always get a laugh because there, there's a role in a paper, you know, paper machine if you're making board called a cooch, you know, and it's spelled couch, you know, and so they can always tell when somebody who doesn't know the industry comes in, they're like, what's this couch roll thing? And so you're like, oh boy, here we go. And so I'd always, you know, kind of say that joke, but a lot of times they would want specific expertise. Well, you know, we, we want to know five other paper companies you've worked for, you know, and done this kind of work for. And now it's kind of interesting where a lot of these folks are like, you know what? We're, we're glad that you work with other paper industries but or co- companies, but we're really interested in some of the under, other industries that you're working with and how do they do things different than any of us in the paper industry does. We want to hear what they're doing. And I'm seeing that more and more. And, you know, the only one that's that's a little bit different and unique is, is pharma because of the GMP stuff. You know, they have to have a heavy validated environment. So they're, they're a little different. They can't do things the way most people do. You know, what takes us three weeks to do in, a, in an unvalidated environment, you know, would take us six months to do in a validated, right? So it, it's just different. Yeah, I, I guess I see the benefit as well, right? Like on the control side too, I think we tend to silo industries and then you go talk to someone outside, you know, like my expertise would be more food and bev, but other industries as well. And if I talk to someone in oil and gas, they have their own uh, ways of doing things, whether it is using different it's controllers, different. different tools, right? And so I feel like having those conversations or having the outside expertise is certainly very valuable. Yeah. And, and, and we look, you know, we've worked with and, and talked to other companies. I mean, you know, we've, we've worked a little bit with Canary Labs, you know, we work with the guys a little bit from Capstone uh, Technology, you know, Data Park and, and uh, Parkview. 
you know, so because because they're in other industries and a lot of times, you know, they may target people who are a little less sophisticated, like pies. Pi used to just run or OSI soft salespeople used to run around chasing smokestacks, as we would call it, you know, power plants, you know, paper mills, chemical plants, anybody that had a smokestack, you know, that's where you wanted to be. And, you know, Pi is pretty expensive, you know, it's, it's not a cheap solution at all. Right. And a lot of companies are, are like, you know, I really want some data, but I, I don't want that level of complexity or want to pay that price. You know, and so there's other options out there, you know, that we've explored and, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get, you know, into working with those guys, you know, more, you know, more often, you know, and I'm, I'm interested to see where the market goes. I mean, there's a lot of people who have or had been vying for this kind of space. I'm not hearing as much about some of them anymore, which is kind of interesting. You know, some of the bigger players like the Amazons and, and Microsofts of the world, you know, they can't make their bajillion dollars in six months. So they're like, this is boring We're, we got to get out, you know, and I'm, I'm starting to see that they realize manufacturing moves super slow, you know, but, but there are some players in here and I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, who the new players are going to be. I, I I'm, I'm curious to see what Aviva does with Pi. I'm curious to see how they rectify all their different historians. They've, they've got a lot and how are they going to rectify all that? So it's going to be an interesting 10 years, you know, the next 10 I share the curiosity, but I, I want to let maybe Dave jump in uh, for a moment as well. Dave, what are your thoughts? Awesome. Thank you, Vlad. No, no. I, I think, I think Thanks for letting I, me talk finally, Vlad. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> well, this, this, is about, this is about average, uh, right? Um, so so I, I like where this conversation is going. Uh, Newman has, has a question or maybe a comment about data fidelity. I want to hit that, and then I want to talk a little bit about the, the future, and I think you kind of – you were just setting ourselves up very well for talking about the future with other platforms and kind of everything else. So mm -hmm. um, talking about data fidelity, his question is, do you start from the ground up to understand how each tag comes in like uh, PLC at, at the logic level? Um, do you start somewhere? Do you start somewhere else? I guess two questions on that is what do you typically see uh, with the customers that you're working with Jim? And then what would you call best practices on the data fidelity side is where would you pull the, the information tags from. Okay. So that's, that's some loaded questions there. So let, let, let's talk specifically about Pi for a little bit. And this yeah. is kind of where the data fidelity studies came from. And actually Dave is the one that, you know, twisted my arm and said, you really ought to do that because he saw some of the stuff we were doing with uh, pattern discoveries, compression insight software. And what we could do is evaluate the raw data coming in and compare it to what the Pi system was compressing and actually storing in the data archive. So in, in Pi, and, and, and each historian kind of handles things a little bit differently, all of them recognize that you don't need every raw data point all the time, okay? That's something that Microsoft and AWS don't recognize. Industrial data historians do, like Capstone handles it different, Canary handles it different, you know, Pi cho chooses to do the lossy compression stuff. So basically you have a couple of parameters, you have exception uh, deviation. So in other words, if it moves past a certain dead band, I'm gonna pass it through to the data archive to actually figure out if I wanna store it, okay? So it's gonna filter out noise to keep your network traffic down, okay? That's, that's, that's done at the interface level. That's what we talked about the interface. Then at the server, 
you're actually going to make the decision, okay, has this changed enough over time that I need to store it? So if you have a temperature that you're looking at and it's 70 degrees right now, 70.0, it changes to 70.02. Well, is your RTD or thermocouple accurate enough to really read that or is that just noise? So you have the opportunity on a tag by tag basis to change those exception and compression settings to get, you know, the ideal, um, you know, ratio, right? The problem is nobody really knows how to do that. It, it, you're you're kind of, and for those of you that are just listening, I'm licking my finger and kind of holding it up like I would to the wind to figure out which way the wind's blowing, right? You're, you're taking a guess, your best guess. And so Compression Insight allowed us to say, okay, here's what's coming in raw and here's what you would actually store based on the settings that you currently have. And we could play some what if scenarios. So what's interesting, you know, what we learn about, about the nature of signals is if I look at a level transmitter or a temperature, they don't change that quickly. They just physically can't, you know, I have a 250,000 gallon tank. It's measured in zero to hundred percent. There's only so fast that's going to fill up or, or drain. Why am I scanning that every second? Why am I storing every data point on every second interval, which the Amazon and Microsoft folks of the world, they will tell you, you need to store it all. Why? Because they make a lot of money off of it. They don't want you to throw any of it out because they don't get as much money. Okay. Whereas, you know, some of the traditional data historian folks came from times when network traffic and network storage or, or data storage was a premium. It's, it's not anymore, really. You know, the technology's gotten so good. Um, so then you look at, say, a flow or a pressure signal. They tend to be very noisy, and they can tend to tell you th some things, especially like, say, if you're looking at a differential pressure across a filter or in an extruder or something like that. That could tell you, you know, you have a plugging issue or something like that, and it may spike up very quickly, and you need to know. So you may want to scan more of it, you know, scan it faster, store more of it. So the reason why we started doing data fidelity studies, you know, one was because Dave like told me to, he's like, you really need to do this. But the reason why we even started working with, with Paul and, and uh, pattern discovery was we were doing work with analytics and this is how he even built the product. We were, we were trying to do some advanced analytics and the data was either flatlined and it wasn't moving enough or two, they were storing everything. And so I, I've seen both extremes of that. Um, I saw a chemical plant, kid you not, they were bringing in data every half a second and throwing almost none of it away. And there was actually a video I did. You can store too much time series data. And I got invited to a podcast because a guy was literally going to light me up over that. And then he watched my video and went, oh yeah, you're right. And it, it was literally, you couldn't see that you were having instrument problems because you, you brought the data in too quickly. So back to his original question. Yes, we look at it on a tag, a tag by tag basis. You know, every, at least Pi system related, you can actually set, set your exception and compression settings and your scan class for every tag. So you can say, all right, this level, I want to bring it in, you know, once every 10 minutes. If it, if it moves, you know, less than half or more than half a percent, I want to actually keep it. If I have a differential pressure, I want to scan that once a second. And if it moves by two tenths of a PSI, you know, I want to keep that. So you can, you can define it on a tag by tag basis. 
And we don't get down to the logic level. I mean, I you could get, you know, down really deep in figuring out how, how to really make your data flow most optimum. Like if you're a Rockwell person, you know, put, put all your data that you're storing to a historian in a UDT or an array, you know, and pipe it that way because it's going to grab all that data at once and, you know, push it over, you know, do periodic tasks so that you open up the overhead, you know, to do all the communications. You're not relying on the overhead time slice. We can get down to that level. We typically don't because a lot of times you just don't need to, right? So we typically control that data flow at the interface level, you know, and at the tag configuration level. So hopefully that answers the question, probably more than answers his question, but hopefully I, I hit all of his points. Absolutely. No. So I, I think you, you absolutely hit more than, than all of those points. And, and I would suggest anyone interested to know more about what Jim is talking about, would read data fidelity study and compression and all of that to go check out the industrial insight YouTube channel in which Jim shares many, many, I'm not even joking, many, many hours of knowledge. And we'll, we'll go take you through uh, a bunch of those, which are, which are very interesting and very useful. And, and honestly, probably much more technical than, uh, than the majority of the folks uh, listening to this. So if you're really involved in Pi or data or interested in learning, absolutely suggest going and, and taking a look at that. If I can... I'm well, sorry, go ahead. One, one quick quick story. We, we just did a data fidelity study for a, a food customer, a major food customer. And they picked their worst plant to throw at me. You know, and, and we're going to do a lot more for them as a result of this. But it was 318,000 tags in the system. And it was a mess and they knew it was a mess, but I was able to quantify the mess. And I was able to give them recommendations and show them here's here's what you're doing wrong and it was certainly eye-opening and the thing about it is we do them for under five thousand dollars i have it pretty well patterned out you get a you know basically what you get is we you get a rental of the software you know for 30 60 90 days whatever we choose you know for like two three hundred tags you give me your tag database i evaluate it with power bi we pick a bunch of tags to promote. We look at those. I teach you what you're looking at. I teach you how to use the software. And I give you a final report that says, here's what I discovered. Not just how your compressing is, but are your scan rates right? Are your interfaces configured correctly? You know, all those kind of things. I mean, I, I go through a lot of depth, you know, so that you really have kind of an action list when you get out of it. So here are the things I need to do. And you're educated. You know how to do it. And you get a private YouTube training session. So... If you don't look at it for three, six months, you can always go back to that YouTube playlist and see how to, okay, what did Jim tell me to do? Okay, here it is. So for under five grand, you get all that and you get some marching orders and then you can buy the software. I think it's what, $4,800 a year and, you know, keep that up. And so, I mean, it's really not a bad deal. So this customer actually, they're going to, they have a project where corporately they're going to put in 8 million new sensors. And they have decided we are going to buy the software and we're going to use that to every time we put in a new sensor, we're going to run it through that to make sure we have good data from the get-go. Why do they want to do it? Because they want to do a bunch of advanced analytics and they know their data's crap. So that's why they want to get all this straight. Matter of fact, I, I had this up on my screen. If if you looked at, if you follow LNS Research, um, they had an article, I think it was earlier this week or, or last week, 
And top, top challenges facing analytics initiatives, data quality issues, number one, change management, number two, that's a big one. And then legacy systems and technology, which a lot of you, you guys address a lot, you know, that was number three. Those were the top three, right? We can help with one and two, you know, legacy systems. Yeah, we, we sometimes fight that. And that's when we need, you know, folks like that are on this call that are more on the control system side. So quick, quick story, you know, Dave, just to kind of understand, like, it, it doesn't cost a lot to go do one and you get a lot out of it. So Absolutely. 8 million tags or 8 million sensors is an amazingly large uh, commitment by an organization of any size. So hopefully the next time we have you on, Jim, which will be certainly less than another 90 episodes in between uh, <laughs> your coming on. Yeah, I'm still um, jealous about Jordan. He's he's on been on here three times and I've only been on twice. So. Oh, well, uh, we're, we're going to have Humphreys, to get Humphreys, I'm, I'm jealous, Humphreys. If you're listening. Uh, I, I love it, but, but hopefully, uh, by the time you come, uh, you come back on, you can certainly give us an update on those 8 million new sensors that, uh, that the client is going to install. Um, yeah. if I can kind of move us off of some of the things that, that you've done in the past, I, I'd love to get some kind of, uh, future thoughts. Uh, so, so you mentioned earlier, uh, or maybe you didn't mention here, you, you were, you were at Aviva Pie World, uh, j just a few months ago. And you mentioned that Aviva bought OSI Soft Pie in a nearly shocking deal, uh, mostly shocking because OSI Soft Pie kind of it has wasn't a shocking. If if you knew what was going on behind the scenes, it wasn't shocking at all. You knew well, they were going to sell. Yes, no, no. I mean, I I knew they were going to sell. I mean, I I was more so surprised that they sold to Aviva because they are kind of the, the white labeled or otherwise historian of choice for for almost any major manufacturer for yes for almost any major organization that has a, a time series database. So uh, surprising on my side that they ended up with Aviva as and Aviva has kind of a, a smattering of their own. Uh, time series is historians in there and yep. it, it'll be interest. It would be interesting to be a fly on the wall to hear what they're <laughs> going to do about all of those time here, time series historians. But can, can we get some predictions of, of your thoughts of what the future is going to look mm. like for, for, or, or maybe, maybe not even that maybe Jim, if you were in, in charge of kind of the next 10 years, five years of what OSI soft is going to do, what would you do uh, to, to help them remain the, the leader in time series data? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, predictions, it's, it's, it's funny, Dave. I, I don't really know how this is going to go. I've, I, as you know, I, I try to look into, and I talk to a lot of people to see like, who's playing with what, what do you see, you know, does it work as well as what we already have? Is it even close? Does it have promise? Still not really hearing anything that keeps popping up. I mean, the same names keep popping up, but nobody's just like, yeah, this is going to be it. If I was a Viva, right, I would, I would kill off Wonderware, kill off SciTech, kill off eDNA, you know, move people into Pi. Um, might be painful, you know, but they kind of had to do that. Well, let me back up. Schneider owns, well, they're going to buy out of Eva. Yep. I think that that deal's going through, you know, that I was working for a distributor that was a Monocon PLC distributor when, you know, the whole merger with Schneider came. So then you had Square D, Telemechanique, 
Modicon, Merlon Geron. Okay, all were under Schneider Electric. For a long time, we didn't know, like, okay, you have Modicon, Square D, and Telemechanic PLCs. What should we recommend a customer? Well, it's obviously not Square D. That thing, those things are ancient, <laughs> right? But it was like, are they going to go Tele? Yep. They're going to go Modicon? Is it some conglomeration thereof? And I think that's kind of what they, well, it's probably more Modicon, a little bit of te Tele influence, right? Um, is what I believe happened. You know, which was good, you know, because Modicom was certainly the flagship of that that group. Um, I mean, that that was a great PLC. You know, a lot of people will not say that, but I, I thought it was great. It's what I got my teeth on. Um, I, I would kill all that stuff off. I still think there's a lot of development work to be done in the on-prem Pi system that they seem to be ignoring. You know, on the server side, the asset framework side, there's a whole lot of stuff that if you come talk to people like me and, you know, there's they have some end user customers that are, you know, pretty deep into this who, if, if you go look at some of the ideas that are up on their board, I'm like, man, those are really good ideas. They ought to be working on that. They don't seem to be. They seem to be kind of close to their roadmap they, they weren't really telling anybody what their roadmap was and maybe they just mm -hmm. don't know it yet they're still mm -hmm. trying to figure it all out but it was it was pretty hush hush you know no one was really getting any real information and it it made some people mad honestly i talked to some people who were like yeah we didn't really care for that you know we we've invested a lot of money and time into this and training we kind of want to know where this is going yep. and we didn't get that but so i i would and obviously you got to give them a little time to figure it out. There's a lot of moving pieces and parts here, right. To figure all that out. They've been trying to develop a Viva or used to be called uh Pi OCS OSI soft cloud services, which is now called a Viva data hub, you know, cloud-based Pi server, you know, and there for a while, I mean, it just, it really had almost no functionality other than it was just a time series database with a very crude trending tool. You know, and you look at it and you're like, you're asking me to pay for that. And I already have the on-premise, you know, Pi system that I could put in Azure or AWS if I want to put Pi in the cloud. And you want me to buy this that does, I mean, it doesn't even match what you guys were doing 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Except it does open up some things if I'm sharing data with people and, you know, doing advanced analytics and things like that. There are, there are a few little use cases out there where, you know, people have been buying it. Well, they've added some asset framework capabilities to it. You know, it just ports in now. They've really got to figure out what that whole strategy is going to look like. If it was me, I don't know what I would do, honestly. I, I would have to kind of see where they, their real plan is. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody's got to get to the cloud. I mean, I I get that. I just don't know that what they have chosen to do is the right path. I don't know what I would counsel them to do either because I'm not involved in just that. I'm I'm trying to figure out how to make use of their software so people can actually run their plants better. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have time to think about that. But, you know, as far as the future, you know, is how how this all works out, I really don't know. I, you know, manufacturing is very slow to change, as we all know. I mean, crap, people are still running PLC 5s. There's probably some PLC 2s running. You know, I know there's some old Texas Instruments, you know, PLCs running out there, you know, running the fast track software stuff. 
Um, people are buying parts off eBay. There's another LNS article that came out, you know, today. And um, yeah, here it is. Equipment connectivity is dependent on old hardware that can only be maintained by cannibalizing other systems available only on eBay. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a major challenge. I mean, we we see that. And, you know, mission critical stuff, you know, running on PLC5s. I remember going, this was probably 2012. I remember walking into a plant. It was a, it was a bag plant over in West Memphis on their main bagging machine. You know, we, we open up the control panel and it's a Monocon 984A. Oh. I pull out one of the boards because this was a modular PLC. I pull out one of the boards and I look at it and it was built in like 1987, 1988. And I looked at the young engineers with me and I was like, when were you born? He said, 1990. I said, you weren't even thought of when this was built. Plugged it back in. You know, I'm like, this was in 2012, yeah. you know, and this thing had been running for 30 plus years. And, and, and that's kind of the way manufacturing has been. And that's going to be a big problem. You have all this gray hair retiring and and all the you have so much turnover now. Nobody stays at a company very long. So you don't have the expertise you had. So it makes it a very challenging environment if you're the software vendor because you're going one direction. And all of a sudden that company has turnover and then you're pivoting or they don't want your stuff. You know, they have something else that they trust. So the future is going to be really bumpy. And and my crystal ball is pretty cloudy, honestly. But I, I, I'm keeping my ear to the ground, you know. With it, it's 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 going to be really interesting. I know that. Interesting. But, the reality yeah. is, and and why I call us time series data experts. Mm-hmm. For us, it does not matter if you're using Canary, Data Park, Pi, IP twenty one, Wonderware, SideTech. We don't care the techniques that we want to use are going to be very similar. You know, obviously we're not going to have certain functionality in certain systems or it's going to be, you know, not as robust as maybe what we're used to. But the reality is we figured out other ways to do a lot of the functionality we're used to doing. Mm-hmm. The techniques are very similar. The, the strategies and what you're trying to do are very similar. Mm-hmm. It does, it, that doesn't really change. You know, you're still working with time series data and it has a different nature than transactional data. And that's why I say we're time series data experts. So what's interesting is if, you know, everybody gets mad at Aviva and says, we're going to start ripping out pie. Guess who they're calling? Us. So I'm curious to see it all, how it all plays out. It's going to be really interesting to watch. So go ahead. Interesting. Uh, so I, I know Vlad's got a bunch more questions about the future, and I'm going to let him ask it. But first, we need to go thank some folks. Uh, so this episode is sponsored by Profit by Design, which is us. Profit by Design is designed to answer the questions, how can I run more efficiently, how can we be more profitable, and how can I retain my good employees? It's a three-day process in which we work with your employees to understand the expensive problems that are happening on the floor and create solutions that are net profitable within the first 12 months. Typical results are 20 to 100x return on investment. We've got a stack of case studies from prior projects in our careers that are net a million dollars in profit or more. If you're looking to run more profitably and figure out how to retain your employees, check us out at ProfitByDesign.io. That's Profit, the letter X, Design.io, or drop me a message, and we'd love to talk more about that. Vlad, what do you have for Jim? 
Well, I was going to make a comment first. You know, I, I think that's one interesting thing about the manufacturing industry is that comparing to the consumer goods, right? If you have something yeah. like an iPhone, people get frustrated if it's not backwards compatible, just a few models, right? So we're looking maybe three to five years with the new release of the of the iOS platform versus in manufacturing as, a, as an OEM or as a software developer, you need to think back 30, sometimes even 50 years. And I, I just... I find that so fascinating when I have conversations with anyone outside of manufacturing, they, they cannot grasp yeah, you know, what, what that is like, right? The same goes with traditional software. I think any technology is obsolete after like two to five years and they just kind of move on and they just deploy new tools. So yeah, I just find that. Yeah, it's like, what car are you driving? I'm still driving my mom's 1982 LTD Crown Victoria. You know, I mean, that's that's essentially what's running our manufacturing plants. I mean, our manufacturing plants, I mean, there, there's still a lot of them that are run by that old technology. And in case you guys don't understand this, but manufacturing in the USA, at least, is all but run by Excel spreadsheet. It is. Excel spreadsheets rule everything. Because everybody's got one and everybody uses one and that's their gospel in a lot of cases. It's crazy. But and I don't care how sophisticated the manufacturer is. There's spreadsheets everywhere. They multiply like little rabbits. They're everywhere. Yep. Many times spreadsheets, slowly. I was going to say many times spreadsheets printed out on paper and we're using the, the paper copy of the spreadsheet to, to run everything. It's insane. We're in 2023 and that's still happening. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, the question that I have for you, Jim, is less in the future, more in the present. So this is coming in from Robert. So he's asking... How do you handle smart sensors that are coming into our industry that control data fidelity? So the sensors uh, send a value only if the change is based on configured gradient. And, you know, if I can elaborate a bit more on that. So the smart sensors that are coming in, right, that don't just send one data point, now send a bunch of, like, configuration values. Like, is that helping in your in your side of things? Is that making it more difficult? Are you getting so much data on the network that it becomes how to say like more puzzling, like what are your thoughts about the smarter quote unquote sensors that we see now? No, I, I think it's, it's good. I, I think <laughs> it's a, it's a good, you know, concept and technique. Right. And the, the thing I would question is whoever's installing the sensor and he's, he or she is putting the sensor in and configuring it. How do they know how it's going to be used upstream? Yeah, I'll just store it every 10 seconds. And if it changes by at least five degrees, good enough. Is it? How would you know? You know, and, and I remember when I was still doing a lot of controls work, there was a, a, a thought process where maybe not so much at the center, but maybe the IO block level, there'd be logic executed there. Oh my gosh, I'm having a hard time getting my maintenance people to understand how to troubleshoot a PLC. And now they're going to be asking, where's the code running? So so there's good and bad to that. You know, I, I would say overall it's good. I, I think, you know, having that extra metadata on it, you know, can certainly help automate, you know, getting hierarchies built, you know, what machine am I attached to, you know, all of those kind of things. And and it can kind of help some of that you know, get built more automatically. That's kind of a problem we see today. We spend a lot of time putting together these asset models, you know, and, and it's, we've, tr 
matter of fact, Nick Vitello wrote wrote some stuff to automate what they're doing at this power plant that he and Philip are working at. But it still took time to figure out, okay, I've got all these tags. What what do these tags go to? What piece of equipment does it go to? Once we knew that, then you can automate getting it, you know, templates built and the elements built and all that stuff in the in the hierarchy. So to me, these smart sensors could certainly help with that, right? That's kind of my my thought. But as far as configuring it sends data only on change and you tell it how much at the sensor. My only question or or a comment to that is the person that's installing it, how do they know how it's going to be used? I mean, that I they don't they know. Hold up the metaphorical thumb, you know, just the just as you yeah, exactly. Thumb, really I mean, right. I mean, hey, you know, my job, I have a work order to put the sensor in. Do and and no two, you know, technicians or installers are the same. Some of them right. are very thoughtful and very conscientious, and others are like, all right, done, checked off here. I'm on to the next thing, you know, like I I think it, it it's a double-edged sword. So you just need to think through it as, as your own company and say, okay, how much am I going to train my folks and how am I going to retain them so that we have some level of continuity? And, and I would add to that thought, what what happens when the sensor fails, right? So if the sensor fails and goes to zero, how do we know that it wasn't in theory at zero before and nothing changes? So it just sits there for weeks or months at zero and doesn't capture any of the appropriate data. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we, I think there has to be more, you know, automation in that regard. I mean, that's, that's kind of a problem we see. We see a lot of, you know, stuff that goes flatlined and nobody knows it for too long. Yep. And all of a sudden you really need that signal, you know, to go back a couple of months and it hasn't been working for the last year and no one knew it, Yep. you know, and that needs and, to be automated. You know, we need, we need to understand when things are flatlining and, and the, not only do we need to know when they're flatlining, but from a change management perspective, we actually have to respect the fact we have to keep our instrumentation up and working. Mm-hmm. Now I'll give you a, a prime example. Uh, there's a, a compressor at a, one of our customer sites. They were rebuilding it. The last I looked at it, about every 18 months in hard costs, okay, just parts and subcontracted labor, mm-hmm. $125,000, $130,000 every time. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not counting, you know, indirect labor that they have that's going against it. Doesn't count downtime, doesn't count any of that. Okay, so I mean, we could be talking half a million, million dollars <laughs> downtime, right? They said, well, we want to do some condition-based maintenance on it. Matter of fact, Dave, on your on your poll today, I just did the laughing emoji. <laughs> I just, I'm like, I'm sorry. I just most and here's why, right? Here's this really expensive thing that's a that's very expensive from a downtime perspective. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to fix. And they're like, we want to do condition-based maintenance. So I'm like, okay, good. And I'm, I mean, I look, I got a bunch of pie tags for it. So I'm like, great. I, you know, put all the AF stuff in. I start, you know, putting the stuff on a trend. I'm like, okay, well, the outboard bearing temperature has been 500 degrees Fahrenheit for the last five years. The vibration sensors on inboard and outboard side haven't worked in two. And when they were working, they were still doing this when the machine was off. So they're so they're still detecting vibration when the machine wasn't even running. I'm like, okay, well, those haven't worked. I'm like, well, I kind of want need to know like what is the bearing temperature doing and how much vibration am I getting? 
Those are really important signals. They didn't even care to keep those up because nobody was looking at it. Yep. They have too many other things to, oh, you know, we got to get, you know, product out the door. Who cares about that sensor? We got, we got to get these other five things, you know? So, I mean, it just gets pushed down the list and, mm-hmm. oh, we want to do condition-based maintenance. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, and, and then it's like, okay, well, we want to do it on our pumps. Well, all you know is that they're running. That's all. That's it. You know, you know, I could put them on a pump curve. We, we've done that in real time. They, they've seen that demo. You know, we've put um, pumps on a pump curve, you know, for a midstream uh, um, gas company. I mean, 5,000 horsepower pumps. I mean, these are five or 6,000 horsepower. These things are huge. There's like five or six of them, right? And they want to keep them at best efficiency point. Well, you need inlet and outlet pressure. You need horsepower. And we need a density of the fluid going through it. And we could tell you where it was operating on that pump and where it was at, at BEP. You know, we, we drew a box around, they wanted to be between 70 and 120% BEP and run on the curve. Mm-hmm. And so we just did an XY plot and you could see all the dots. You wanted the dots inside the box and on the curve. Mm-hmm. There was a whole lot of dots outside that, outside that box. All right. And you're like, okay, every time that's a lot of money yep. that you're not recouping because you're not running efficiently. So we go to a plant and they're like, well, we want to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All I know about your pumps is that, is that they're running. How am I going to do that? Make it up. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I kind of did the laughing emoji. You know, it's like there, there's no impetus. And, 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 and I, let me take that back. That's unfair. It's not there's not an impetus to keep things fixed. How many plants do you know that have a fully trained fully funded and complete maintenance staff. They're not shorthanded. Like they're, they're across all shifts. They've got well-trained experienced people on all shifts and they're fully, you know, they keep everything running perfectly. Zero. I'm not sure I've met a single one who's ever like even come close to claiming that. Zero. So, so the thing is, oh, we want to do condition-based maintenance. Okay, well, who's going to keep up with all the instrumentation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd love to do it. Jim, let so me ask a follow-up. Times... Go ahead. Go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask a, a follow-up question to that. Maybe you were on your path to answering that. So earlier, you know, you gave an example where you ended up putting in a system that allowed them to save that like four hours worth of, uh, of downtime and recall, right? With... Um, what's it called with the filtration system. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, where in 2023, right? If, if you're doing this type of data discovery and then analysis and then implementation work, where do we stand between sort of getting this data and looking at it manually and then manually sort of communicating what needs to be done and implementing that versus utilizing maybe some of the, I want to say AI machine learning tools that we, are hearing more and more about these days. And I think, you know, the impression, again, to piggyback on my previous comment between manufacturing and consumer electronics, it almost, the impression is that you're going to get this data, right? So Jim, like here are 10 tags of these, let's say temperature level sensors, and then can you feed it into your model? And then somewhere at the edge, it's going to automatically reabsorb whatever you're sending it to and control our process. Like, how close or how far are we from that reality? And what, I mean, like what needs to happen in the process today? Oh my God. 
Well, because how look, close, I'm asking how this question because I get those questions from people that I talk to, right? Like that haven't necessarily oh, know. We had the plant exposure. So, so how close or how far really depends on the manufacturer, right? There are some companies, no doubt, that are doing that. They're few and far between, but they are. Very, very few and far between, in my opinion. Um, and it's it is so funny. I've Dave and I've had these conversations, and I really don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but I've I've heard this so many times. You know, especially with machine learning AI people, like, well, just give us your data. You know, we'll do our you know our magic to it, and we'll push it right down to the you know control system and tell you how to run your plant, and you'll make millions of dollars. Kumbaya, we'll all be happy. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, you know, and, and, and there were some people that I thought were pretty smart. They were preaching that. And I'm like, okay, you, you, you haven't been there and done it. The most companies are a really long way from that kind of a, a future. And I think their executives probably think they're close to it probably because they're being told that they are and the people that are in their ear are telling them that they're close. By the time you get down to the plant floor, people, they'll just laugh and say, yeah, good luck with that. You know, and because I, as I said, a lot of times the instrumentation, you're not getting data at the rate you need. It's not clean. Your sensors don't stay working. Um, you know, th those are massive issues. I mean, you know, we just saw in the LNS, right? 37% of their respondents said data quality issues are our top challenge. I think it's probably, it probably is more than that, you know, because of what I've seen, you know, I mean, I, we work with some major companies, I mean, some big ones, and they all tell me that we have data quality issues and they're trying to work on it. You know, they're, they're trying to get there, but man, it's, it's monstrous. It, it's, it's hard. And then the key, then you have to maintain, you know, the equipment. And then you have the muddiness of operators, you know, who, you know, they just decide, oh, well, you know, A shift runs it this way, B shift, you know, tweaks five, five knobs to run it differently. C shift does it. No, I do it this way. They all think they're right. Well, that muddies the models up. And you really can't tell what's going on. And matter of fact, we we've got um, an SOW that we're working, you know, there's a, it's a chemical company that's the end user, but we're working with an, an analytics company they presented at Pi World, and we got introduced to them, you know, through the Aviva partnership. And we're going to do, you know, a pilot project. And I'm really, excuse me, curious to see how they handle some of that. Cause I know Dave and I have, have done some live demo or some YouTube demos of Simca, right? Which is a multivariate analysis tool. And you can see the muddiness in that model. You know, you, you can see, you know, if, if I took Simca and, you know, colored by shift, it, it looks like a kaleidoscope. They're all over the place, you know. And I remember one that I looked at. It, it was funny. It was a process. They're making the same product. Okay. And I put, put the Simca analysis together for about a year. And I said, okay, in January, you're running down here. You know, so this is like a three-dimensional model. So you're running down here and, and think of it this way. So each dot on the screen represents, you know, a full batch genealogy. And so if you have a dot on the screen and you put a dot right next to it, 
they basically ran almost exactly the same. There was just minor changes, right? But then if you have a dot way over here, you, you changed a bunch of stuff. You don't know what yet, but you changed a bunch of stuff. So, you know, we have all these dots on the screen in kind of a, like a reverse Z pattern, okay? Down at the bottom left was January. Then you start to go up and to the right into March, then up and to the left into August, then up and to the right into October. And I said, you guys are running the same product, but you're not even running it the same way. And as I dug into it, one of the things that kept them weighed down in January was they had an airflow sensor that had gone bad, that was going to their bag house and was giving us some really funky readings and it had blown the whole model up. So, it, so even I, I could take it out of that model and then all of a sudden things would start to come together a little bit more, you know, like January would come, you know, closer to March. But I could still say that, see they were moving around. So you have, you know, sensors that don't stay in calibration or don't stay working. And then you have operators that are constantly tweaking crap, you know, and not running That's consistently. So, so a lot of times that makes AI or, um, you know, machine learning very, very challenging. You have to kind of figure out how to work with some of that stuff. Uh, it's very interesting, yeah. So the, the process, I guess, they were tweaking the process at the same time, right? Whether through CI initiatives, Kaizen's, like whatever you have. And that becomes oh, no, it very wasn't difficult. That, even that sophisticated. It was just, okay. you know, Bub on third shift said, well, I, I think we ought to do this. And then, and then you have a guy who had been there 25 years, and he's a notorious tinker. Really, really smart. Brilliant, right? But he's a notorious tinker. You know, it's like, well, we're not making quality. Oh, okay, well, let's change these dials, you know, because I remember, you know, back in 1996, we did this. And, you know, so he was kind of constantly telling him to tweak stuff, you know. And so I remember showing it to him and I'm like, Cecil, you're you're not even running the same. Why? Like, you're running the same product. What's changing? Like, why are you constantly tweaking crap? I can see it. Like, I don't even know your process that well, but I can see you're not running the same. And I can tell you what's different. Why do you keep tweaking crap? You know, I never got a straight answer. And I could, I, you know, I could see, Jim, how maybe some of those dials you could at the very least track in your software. But if they're doing mechanical changes, if they're doing process changes, there, there's zero way. Like, you're just going to have to talk to someone like, oh, yeah, like that one day. Oh, yeah, know, we, changed, we, we, yeah we changed out the co-feed in March. And that's why it went this way. And you're like, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff that, that happens that way. And it, it's it's just so difficult. I remember also looking at an it, um, I did a SIMCA analysis for a paper company, and they had this quality parameter called apparent density. Don't ask me to explain it because I, I don't remember exactly what it is. <laughs> but they had this step change at this particular point in time in in apparent density. It went down. And they wanted to keep it up, and they couldn't figure out why. And I said, okay, well. We'll look at it. You know, we, we've learned Simca and, you know, we we want to understand how to, you know, run it better. So I'll make a deal with you. I'll, I'll, I'll do this at no charge. But if I find something, then we're going to sit down and talk. And it's going to be based on like what we save you. And, you know, as I tell them, correlation is not causation. You know, this is good at finding correlations. You're going to have to help me, you know, call BS on the model, you know, and tell me if this is causation or there's no way in the world it is. Matter of fact, I had that conversation with this this other machine learning you know company today. We were kind of talking through some of that, you know, and how they deal with that. But you know, it was very strange. We get back to I was I was literally looking in the pulp mill, like, okay, well, I don't see anything on the machine. You haven't changed anything on the machine 
that you're measuring that tells me why your apparent density went down. What's the time lag between what you're doing in the pulp mill before it hits the paper machine? They're like, eh, you know, about eight hours. So I time lagged it and lined up all the data, you know, about eight hours apart. So I got all their pulp mill data. And one of the things I asked them is I said, okay, how do I know what kind of chips you're cutting? You know, you're actually pulling off the wood yard. Is it 30 day old ones that are from the bottom of the pile? that have been rained on, you know, 10 times, or are they fresh chips that you just cut? Well, we don't know that. Don't you think they might cook differently and therefore run differently? Like, it, you know, are you tracking like where these come from? Like if you change suppliers, like I was, I was trying to think because I got through this and we found a couple of correlations or like not causation. So like we threw it out, you know, cause we, it, we, it didn't help us explain anything. So we, so we just threw it out. I literally got to the end of it and I said, I think this is something you're not even measuring. Mm -hmm. And so it's something no that you change. It could be a mechanical issue. It could be wood supplier. It could be, you know, particular species or, you know, particular forest they're cutting from. Like, I don't know, but it's, it's not in any of the data they're tracking. I know that 100%. And, and I think that's a lot of, you know, challenge too, is, is a lot of people, you know, the data scientists just say, give me all your data, give me one second data forever, you know, and I'll go figure it out. Well, no, that's stupid. You're going to spend a bunch of time cleaning it. You, you probably really want hourly data or 15 minute data or something like that, you know, and you don't need everything, you know, but let's talk through this. And, and I think there's a, a big disconnect between the data scientists in general Okay, there's some good ones out there. Don't there's some that I know and you know who I'm talking about. I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on the ones that just are like, give me all your data and I don't want to talk to any of your process people. I remember talking to Alex Tate from uh, Capstone. He told me a good story about that one. You know, data scientists came in, paper, you know, paper company, they do a ton of stuff in paper. And, you know, they said, Yeah, the reason why you're having all the sheet breaks is because of a valve on the broke tank. The broke tank is the waste tank. That's all the stuff that when they have a sheet break, it, you know, it goes down into a pit and they send it over to a tank to be recycled back in. It's a valve on that that's causing all your sheet breaks. Interesting correlation, dude, but get out of here. Uh, you know, and so so we we see a lot of challenges, you know, regards to that. You know, it, it's data quality. It's stuff I don't know if they're even measuring, you know, to your point. Maybe they changed out something mechanically that's not, you know, registered or, you know, it. it it's really hard to say sometimes it, it's super muddy. So it's, it's not to say that there isn't value being gained. We, we see it, you know, fairly often, you know, some people will do some things that, you know, they wouldn't have been able to do before because of some of these tools. But, you know, a lot of times I see it and I'm like, you use a sledgehammer to kill a fly. All you needed was a fly swatter and you're claiming victory. I see that a lot too, you know, because we, we just spent a million dollars. We can't say we failed. We have to claim something, nope. right? And so, yeah, we used that sledgehammer and we killed that fly. Look at us. Yeah, you didn't really need that if you if anybody who knows what they're doing, but the executive doesn't know that. It's like, yeah, the fly is dead. That's all I care about. Good deal. Yeah, I would agree. Jim, do you see a, I want to say, a higher appetite for data and data analytics going into 2023? Uh, you know, looking at some of the 
I want to say, turbulence in late 2022, right? Yeah. Like we're unable to staff enough people. We're putting in more automation. We're maybe yeah. going into a recession. That's a whole other debate. What are your yeah. thoughts when it comes to data? We're, we're, in a, we're in a recession by traditional definitions. We're in a recession. I would okay. agree. I would we've agree. had we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth. We're we're in a recession. Yep. Full full stop. Okay. They can call it what they want. Full stop. That's we're we're in the traditional definition. But I think it's going to get worse. I think I think it has a chance to get a lot worse actually. And you're right. That's a whole different discussion. I've always thought the business model that I went I was going after when I started at LSI and then Industrial Insight would be better in a down economy. Yep. Because you can't cover up your mistakes by spending a bunch of capital money and putting in more equipment. Now, like we have a customer right now, it's a it's a smaller food food manufacturer, and like one of the things we're doing with them is 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 looking at downtime. We're using actually the Pi system to do kind of a rudimentary downtime system, and we're loading it into Power BI. One of the questions they're trying to answer is, are we actually running our equipment as much as we think we are? Are we scheduling That's it properly? Right. You know, instead of maybe, you know, buying that new line because we can't make enough of a certain product and everybody tells us we're running like we should, let's kind of oh, really look not. at the data. Right. And and I think I think our job not only is secure, but I think we're gonna grow over the next several years. Yeah, I think the demand in automation and in data is only going to increase in this economy. It, it has to. Like these companies aren't going to have the capital money to just throw stupid money at it. They're going to say, you know, we got to kind of tighten our belt and spend our money wisely and still meet, you know, customer demand, even though it's down. Like, you know, now is almost really a time to kind of retool and rethink. You know, a lot of these companies are, you know, fairly cash rich. You know, maybe they have to take a little bit of a hit. You know, and and come out of this thing smarter. May, you know, maybe not satisfy Wall Street so much. You know, and and do the right things. You know, yeah, maybe that won't happen. I mean, we just saw Microsoft who makes a bajillion dollars a year. You know, just laid off ten thousand people. And I and I said, you know, and 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 I saw the reason why I even commented was this guy who I've followed before. You know, he had a post about it, and he's you know he was very upset about it. He's like, well, you know, why does Microsoft have to do that? I'm like. It's just the way the corporate America works with Wall Street, you know. And so, I mean, we don't like it, but it's just the way it, the way it is. We have to kind of accept it and know, you know, that's what's happening. But I think in an economy like that, in and in, in, you know, the the times we're about to hit, I think some companies are going to have to be a little smarter about how they use what they already own. And I think it's going to give all of us who work in automation and in what we do in the data and data analytics, I think it's going to give us some seriously good opportunities if if we're looking at it right and if we're marketing ourselves the right way. I like that prediction. Uh, I, I want to say I'm a little bit more pessimistic, but I really like that take. Well, you know, at least on our side, you know, I, I keep asking the question, you know, what are you guys going to do? I mean, yeah, we have a we have a couple of things that we thought, you know, might happen in 2023 that are a little bit up in the air, but man, my phone keeps ringing. My email keeps going off, you know, people asking, you know, for more stuff. And, you know, and some of it, I think, you know, words getting out about us. I mean, I've hired some super talented people, you know, and people are seeing that growth. I, I was joking around with, you know, with Dave yesterday, I think probably after you got off the phone, it's, you know, it's kind of like, 
you know, it's, it's such a bad analogy, but it's the only one I could really think of that, that fits. Right. You know, it's like, you're the nerdy guy in, in high school and all of a sudden you date one of the pretty popular girls. Well, then all of a sudden all the girls think you're really cute and you're really attractive. You know, it, it's, it's like success begets more success, right? You, you become more attractive if you're successful. And when it was Jim Inc., you know, and just me trying to figure out how to sell myself and get people to, you know, come use my, my services and me, you know, or just me and Ben, you know, it's different. You know, now I've got, you know, six people. We've grown pretty rapidly over the last six months. And they're like, man, you must be doing something right. We've seen some of your content before. You seem to make a lot of sense. Come help us. So, so maybe some of it's that. But I talk to a lot of people in what we do, and I think everybody kind of feels the same way. Yeah, I think our jobs are safe and they're only going to grow. I hope I'm right. And it's always been my prediction. I think we all hope you're right, Jim. I, I think yeah. I think that we all hope you're right. Um, my, my one comment talking about food manufacturers or other, uh, I guess I've, I've talked to many groups, right, who say, hey, we need to run more business. The, the business case demands that we produce more. And sometimes it's we don't have 10, 20, 100 million dollars to go expand or buy right. new lines or we've run out of space. I would say very rarely have I ever walked into a facility that is actually constrained or even close to capacity strained, um, yep. as opposed to they think that they're running as much as they, they can, are. but then you do a little bit of math. I, yes. I mean, I, I know a lot of fortune, like 50 style companies, bigger and smaller, whom, you know, our business need at 20 30, 40, 50% what mm -hmm. would be their actual capacity. So yep. very few companies have come close to actually utilizing their lines or, or their theoretical maximums, um, even given, you know, healthy downtime opportunities. Yep. So I am also hopeful that more people are interested in saying, hey, how can we go optimize what we currently have as opposed to, hey, this works. Let's just go buy another line or another five lines and invest $100 million. And maybe we'll get a 12% boost because we'll run 25% for the next uh, you know, three years until we figure out how to actually run the line. Yeah, that's the easy button. I remember Mar Martin Davis, you guys have probably heard me talk to him. You know, He was the CIO at J.D. Irving and that was exactly some of the stuff he looked at. And he, he was like, we had plenty of capacity. We just weren't running it right. Yep. We weren't measuring it and we weren't running it right. And he helped Absolutely. them increase, you know, they're like, we don't need to go buy a bunch more equipment and build new plants. Like we, we have all the capacity we need. We just have to be smarter. And I think there's a lot of companies in that, in that space. And, and I think, that's something that's going to have to happen here in the next couple of years. I, I think that you're, the day of reckoning is going to happen. And I, I mean, I think some people go out of business. I think there'll be mergers and acquisitions and there, there's going to be a lot of turmoil and a lot of turbulence. But I, I truly believe these companies are going to say, you know, we, we got to go figure this out. Agreed. Agreed.
I think that th this is this has been great. Uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is a conversation that we could easily at go on for for six hours. But I, I do want to be cognizant of everyone's time, so so yeah. I'm going to go kind of move towards uh, move towards wrapping it up and and give you four very loaded questions yeah. uh, as, as we as we move towards the end, Jim. So uh, we asked you to we asked you to do some predictions uh, kind of in the beginning. You said that you don't particularly love predictions, so we'll only ask you to we'll only ask you to, to do predictions once more um okay. on this show um kind of outside the osi soft pie may, maybe in the industrial data space in general mm -hmm. what are your predictions where, where do you kind of foresee that going in the next handful of years well it's certainly not going away and it's going to get more sophisticated people are going to mature i mean this this up-and-coming workforce i mean you know, millennials and Gen Z that are, you know, coming up and or coming into power, you know, I mean, everybody that works for me is a millennial, you know, they're all in their thirties. I mean, they grew up, you know, with these things and computers, right. They, they demand more. And I, I only see it maturing, um, you know, Gen Z, like my kids, man, they, you know, they're, they're super tech savvy. You know, it's it's only going to increase, right? As as we kick yep. the boomers out, you know. No offense to boomers, but you know, it, it's time for the those of us like the Xers, like us, that that kind of bridge that gap. You know, we all grew up with with computers and you know the rise of cell phones and all that. You know, we embrace it too. I think it's only going to mature and get better. So I, it ain't going away. That's for sure. I, I would agree. Do you imagine that we're going to see a lot more data driven companies uh, come in? into the, the industrial space or do you imagine that uh the the majority of the companies who are going to be doing you know time series and other data uh over the next 10 years or so already exist and when we are well maybe we know of don't know of them but they already exist i, I think it's both i mean data-driven companies are going to win you know they're they're, they're flat going to win they're, they're going to beat everybody else I mean, we're seeing it in, in, no, in other industries. Perfect. I mean, I mean, look in sports, right? You know, Moneyball that, you know, um, I can't remember his name now, but the guy from Oakland A's, you know, he, he started playing the analytics game. It changed sports completely. You know, now everybody plays that game. So you either evolve yep. or die. So I think we're going to see it manufacturing too. And I think we see that in other industries too, that, right? That, like that is you see data-driven decisions all over the place, right? And even, yeah. I want to say again, like personal, I want to say consumer electronics, you see like Amazon had even, you know, the bracelets that monitor your health, your heartbeat. Like, so I think people want more data in their life. And I think For sure. it's only a natural transition to have that in, in the workforce. I, I, don't see, I don't see any argument against data ever, right? Like you can always I mean, I, discard data and not make the decision based on data. Yeah, I, I, used, be I used to tell having, I used to tell people, yeah, I tell people all the time, you know, Ben runs his life on one of these, right? Yeah. And, you know, then he walks into an industrial plant and they hand him a clipboard and say, here, write all this stuff down. What? You know, and, and the, this generation coming coming up and, you know, coming to, you know, of age now, they just demand more than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, so maybe talking to that generation, Jim, uh, we always like to ask for, for some career advice. Mm -hmm. So if you're giving advice, uh, may, maybe to one of your sons, maybe to, to one of your employees or someone coming to say, hey, Jim, 
who, you know, what, what should I do to prepare myself to make the jump for the next five to 10 years or to get further into industrial data? What is the best advice and recommendations that, that you're giving out? So my advice to my kids is unless you want to, you know, be an engineer, lawyer, or doctor or something where those only those things that truly require a college degree, don't go to college, go, go learn a trade. Because those that are, you know, learning how to be electricians and welders and, you know, a, my gosh, it, if anybody wants to be an AC tech and come down to Florida, you're going to be making a mint in 10 years, a mint, because we're not going to have any. It, it's insane. So that's my advice to my kids, um, you know, is, is do one of those paths. But to your second point, you know, if you want to get into what we do, you know, it really, it starts with curiosity. You know, I was always intrigued with statistics and data. I mean, I still remember my batting average as a 10-year-old in peewee. It was 583. I still remember it. The last year I played, you know, peewee because my dad, like, kept stats, right? I used to track in high school. I'd write it down, you know. We didn't even have Excel yet, but I would track how many, you know, I played golf. I'd track how many fairways, how many greens I hit, you know, about how far I hit the ball. And I would I would literally do the math and average it all out, try to get an idea of where I needed to improve. I did it in college with bowling, you know. And then every job I have worked – I worked somehow with data trying to improve what I was working on. You know, when I was a Rockwell salesman, I, I remember the guys used to give me a hard time because we had all these reports coming down from Cognos. They were uh, um, just a cube, you know, all this data we had because we had, you know, limited APRs. We had lots of good data on who bought what. Mm -hmm. And I would literally, I, I literally wrote an Excel macro that would, they would pick the right salesperson, you know, for some of these reports, I, you know, the distributor sales guy, cause there was four distributor sales guys that I worked with and I could just hit a button and it would pick all the right, you know, account managers. And I could sort, sort by them and say, okay, you know, Bill, your customers don't ever buy this. How come you don't sell that? Right. Cause I, I had a saturated market. Like we weren't going to sell any more PLCs. Everybody who wanted Allen Bradley PLCs were already buying them and everybody who didn't want them hated us. So they weren't, and they weren't changing their mind. So a lot of the high tech stuff, you know, I went in and they're like, well, there's nowhere to grow. I'm like, bull crap. There's always a place to grow. So we grew in all these different areas. Why? Because I went and looked at the data and said, well, here's all the crap we're not selling. Let's go sell that. And so I've been very data driven in everything I've ever done. You have to have that curiosity inside. And, you know, the reality is there's openings you know, for, for someone who has curiosity and likes to work with numbers and what we do, we can teach you the rest, but we can't teach you to have that curiosity and that, and that wanting to understand more about the data. You know, you, you have to have it. We can teach you how to, how to do everything. We just can't teach that the desire. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, no, thank, thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Jim. Um, Next question is, is, we like to ask for book recommendations. And mm -hmm. as I, I sometimes joke, this is Vlad's hashtag not sponsored audible segment uh, where, where we started. I think Jim gave us one of our very first recommendations all the way back on, on episode nine. And we what have collected. I, I, I don't remember, Jim, that this this 
I, I l- hey, let me go back on. and see if uh, if I've got you on episode nine uh, with, with that information. I, I didn't kidding. do the I didn't do the best job a- the typing all of those answers all the way it's, back it, on episode. It's, nine. it's okay. I'm just giving you a hard time. I'm probably going to recommend the same thing I did then. Okay. So probably the most influential book for me. Um, and matter of fact, we're going to we're actually doing this as a company. So hint, all of you guys. I know my team is listening or they have been um, or at least some of them said they were going to at least have it on in the background and listen. So if you're listening, read chapter one of storytelling with data, because we're going to talk about it Monday. Okay. So we're actually storytelling with data by Cole Nussbaumer Naflick. She was a former um, people analytics um, executive at Google. She wrote a great book on how to tell stories with data and my visual capabilities were horrible when I started this. I used to make, I used to make grass and they were like, gee, Jim, that's pretty. And it was not a compliment. Um, and, and on that regard, high, you know, high performance HMI handbook. So yep. you're going to get bonus. I'm, I'm going to re- recommend three books. So that one, you know, storytelling data, high performance HMI, because I think it teaches how to draw someone's eye to mm-hmm. something that they need to go see. Um, and the last one's a little bit different. Um, I really like the infinite game from Simon Sinek, the guy that wrote, you know, start with why, you know, but it talks about companies and like how you survive. They always talk about winning. And it's like, we're not playing a finite game. You're playing a game to survive in the long term, right? There is no defined set of rules and a score you're keeping, right? Okay. We have more, you know, runs at the end of the baseball game. We have more points at the end of the football game or basketball game. We have a, predefined court or field and a predefined way to score and you know the most points or runs wins mm-hmm. well you don't really have that in business you, your job is just to continue to last and so it's just a different mentality and so that's a really good book you know to think about especially for those of you that you know are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs mm-hmm. you know it's like how to how to just think about you know, the surviving and growing and adapting and all that, because you're not playing a finite game. So, and, and one other thing I will I'll recommend one more is the design of everyday things. Um, one of my quotes on, you know, why I started reading the high performance issue, my handbook actually came from that. And it was really talking about industrial accidents and, you know, basically saying, Hey, you know, the operators probably in an industrial accident investigation, what they often found was in hindsight, it looked like the operator should have known what was going on. Mm-hmm. But what they found was the operator was probably inundated with a whole bunch of information that they didn't need to know. And they couldn't filter out the things they actually needed to know and take action on. Yep. And so that's something you really, like in our space, you really have to do is like, how can I give people actionable information where they look at a screen and in 15 seconds can see how the plant's running and go, aha, I need to go there because we have a problem or potentially are about to have a problem, right? That's that's kind of the mindset. So you got four, Dave. So for all those people that gave Dave the deer in headlights, look, I made up for it for you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jim. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think all of those are, are really good books. I am interested to hear kind of how, how you and Industrial Insight go with, I'm going to call it a book club. I know you guys probably aren't calling it yeah. a book club, but, yeah, but I'm interested to hear how that goes uh, on your side. I will make one comment on high performance, the high performance HMI handbook. I generally like it uh, a lot. I, I feel like most people who I know who do any sort of industrial controls and design have benefited from reading it. Um, I, 
the, the last time I looked, it was fairly expensive, like more than a hundred dollars. Um, yeah, I, I think the last time I looked, it was, Jeez. it was, mo- it was more than a hundred dollars, but I, I've heard that it's, it's a good book and yeah, I've heard that it's a, it's a good book and if nothing else, a really good starting place in order to, uh, in, in order to start and kind of rethink how we do industrial controls and HMI so, controls. So, so as a controls engineer, just ask your boss to buy it for you. See if you can expense it. If any of folks want it, I'd, I'd have them expense it if they want to go read it. I'm, I'm only about a third of the way through it. I'm, I've been kind of remiss on reading. I've been doing too much YouTube lately. That's uh, how too, I've been too much lately. YouTube. Uh, as it goes, uh, as it goes for many of us, no, th- this is, this has been amazing, Jim. And, and last question for you is, is who do you want to talk to? Uh, kind of how can our listeners help you and what you guys are building at industrial insight? So it's funny, a guy at one of our old customers at, at Aviva world really kind of helped me like cement this, like what's our ideal customer look like in, in, in a lot of ways, right? Simply. You have a mountain of problems on one side, you have a mountain of data over here, or maybe you don't have any data, but you have a mountain of problems and you don't know how to solve them. And maybe you sketch something up on a napkin, but you don't know how to execute it. Call me. We'll figure it out. That's what our job is. I love it. it. Short and sweet. This has been amazing. Thank you, Jim, so much. Thank you, everyone, for for coming to hang out on Manufacturing Hub. As I said, I promise we will get Jim on again uh, before we hit episode 180. Uh, so, so, well, so you never know. Good. Nobody may listen to this. You know, I mean, you guys thought it was great, but everybody else was like, man, this was the most boring one yet. You know, well, well Jim, Jim, here's the thing: we I get to pick the guest, so I can promise <laughs> that, that the next interval will, will be less than the uh, 84 or or whatever it was. This but you'll time. have Jordan on two more times. We'll have Jordan on like 50 more times, but but that yeah. that's okay. Quantity. Uh, it's hey, not hey, necessarily a quantity. Like, like I told, like I told you yesterday, you know, having Jordan on is very appropriate because he has his finger on the pulse of what's going on, you know, in manufacturing, you know, because he does so much recruiting. So Absolutely. I mean, I I listen into what he has to say when I can. You know, I'm like, yeah, what is going on? You know, and I and I and I I think it's great what you guys do because, you know, it's hard to keep up with everything and. You know, there's so many different aspects to manufacturing and how to make it successful. I'm in just this little niche, right? This niche of a niche, you know, essentially. So I appreciate what you guys do. No, absolutely. Thank you, Jim. Jim. And thank you everyone for coming to hang out with us. If you are listening in podcast form, uh, please feel free to go rate us five stars on Audible and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all of those other places. You can go ahead and do that. If you got the follow button to go follow us around and automatically download, um, downloads help. Uh, Apple Podcasts picked us up a couple of months ago and we like quadrupled the number of Apple Podcasts or uh, downloads th- that we had. And Sweet. I have found, Jim, that if I ask people to, to go download and subscribe, people go download and subscribe. It, it is it, it is that causation and correlation uh, both both next to each other. If you guys are watching on YouTube, uh, please hit the thumbs up and hit the subscribe uh, for, for Solus PLC. And if you guys are watching here on LinkedIn, again, thank you all very much. Uh, please go follow Jim, follow Vlad, follow myself. Uh, go go hit the subscribe or follow button on manufacturinghub.live or no, Manufacturing Hub Network on LinkedIn. And if you guys want to go follow us uh, everywhere else and get the most up-to-date information, go check out manufacturinghub.live, which is kind of the, the main source for everything that we are doing. Uh, but until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you.